Many years ago now, I had dinner one evening at a restaurant called Windows on the World. It was an apt name for this particular place because it sat atop a skyscraper so high that the waiters and waitresses actually wore flight attendant uniforms. <laughs> I was seated at a, a great table, uh, although almost every table in this place is great because the view is just mind-blowing. And mine was right up against one of the windows, and it was dusk, and the lights were coming on below, and I gazed down what seemed like just an unimaginable distance at this vast uh, circuit board, it looked like, like a computer circuit board, only the, they weren't transistors and resistors, those were were buildings and, and waterways and roads, and there were a million lights out there, all the lights of the, of the homes and the apartments and the offices and the cars and the boats going by, each glowing like a little electron, electrifying this amazing circuit board. And it suddenly struck me that every single one of those millions of pinpricks of light out there was a somebody, or maybe a family, or maybe a, a team, or a group of people, each and every one of them with a name and a story, each and every one of them with a set of gifts and baggage from their past, and hopes and dreams and, and worries and worth, each and every one of them. I couldn't see their color, I couldn't see their class, their politics, where they had grown up. All I could see were these little lights, some of them faint, some of them strong, some of them flickering or blinking or moving or actually going out. And each light represented this precious life we all share. And the thought rose in me like a lump in my throat. Is this how God sees us all the time? From his ultimate elevation. Is God able to see with a perspective that we somehow miss down here at street level in life? Is he able to see above all of the grit and the grime, above the disputes and differences that so occupy us here at street level, does he mainly see all that actually unites us? Does his heart pound like mine was in that particular moment at the absolute glory and beauty of what he had created and what his creatures were capable of creating? And does he ache and yearn to see every single one of those unique beings discovering what they were made for, that they're not alone, that there's a grace available to them and a power for living available that can enable them to fulfill individually and as a community their fullest potential. I wonder, does God look from his heights and see things this way all of the time? What do you think? What do you suppose? I never got the chance to sit at that particular table again uh, because that amazing window on the world was on the 110th floor of the first tower of the World Trade Center. And 15 years ago today, as you well know, 
it fell from the sky. It plummeted 110 stories to ground zero, snuffing out thousands of those precious points of light, among them our pastor, good friend, Jeff Maladnik, so many other precious ones. On 9-11, the worldview for many of us changed dramatically. Um, suddenly and with an intensity that we had rarely felt before, we began to worry about the others out there. Uh, behind the face of some of those people that were passing us by on the street might be not in fact the glimmering light of the holy God eager to bless and to help, but a terrible darkness bent on murdering us and killing our family members and loved ones and destroying our way of life. This was no longer our imagination. This was not paranoia. This had happened and could easily happen again, and it would take us a long time to get over that. And we're still not over that. There was a time before all of this took place when Americans were arguably the most outgoing and open-hearted people on the planet. There was something in the American spirit that was reflected so beautifully in that inscription on the Statue of Liberty that most of us know. We were the refuge of the teeming masses yearning to breathe free, and we were pleased to play that role in this world. We were the people who had crossed oceans to rescue people from fascism and then stayed behind and sacrificed ourselves and gave of ourselves even further to rebuild the lives of even our enemies. We were the melting pot that had managed to fuse the genius of many different ethnicities into a marvelously, exceptionally productive kind of, of society. We might be Southsiders or Northsiders. We might be Republicans or Dems. But in the end, and at the most, we were Chicagoans and we were Americans first. We had a passion for the underdog. We had a zeal to find talent, no matter what it looked like, and leverage it for the common good. We had an interest in our neighbors. We had a zeal to see liberty and justice extended to all. And although we never did any of this perfectly, though as a people throughout our history, we have been plagued by so many isms of one kind or another, there was an outreaching open-heartedness in America that was the admiration of the world, and for good reason. For good reason. September 11th, I think, dealt a very severe blow to that spirit. Um, and as I've suggested, I don't think we've recovered from it. Uh, it shattered the window through which many of us were looking out at the world. Uh, since then, Americans have become increasingly oriented toward protecting ourselves from the others. And I don't just mean the others who attacked us on 9-11. We ought to be protecting ourselves against those people. It's only wise to 
to protect ourselves against those kinds of people. But now, however, it just feels to me, maybe to you as well, that we are struggling with a generalized anxiety about all kinds of others. It's like what happened on that day in September began to seep into our very consciousness and to go places we never intended it to go, and it's changed us in some critical way. As America has become more diverse, as it has become less religious, as it the different generations are having different cultural experiences and no longer living with the same kind of experiences. There are just so many more others out there. And and all around us now, it seems, at a level that hadn't been there before, are, are people who don't look like us, who don't dress like us, who don't talk like us, who don't vote like us, who don't believe like us, who don't sing like us, who don't worship like us. There are so many others, so many others. And if you listen to the media from the left or from the right these days, you will hear a constant diatribe about those awful, stupid, dangerous others. And and the level of anxiety that's there just can't help but affect us. And even as Christians, we have been, I think, profoundly shaped by this tone. We have turned inward more and more within the churches of America. We have retreated to our own echo chambers. We cocoon ourselves into our safe circles, much as people who do not call upon the name of Jesus do. And we bury ourselves in our TV programs and our trivial pursuits and our consumer obsessions much the same way as others do. How many of us, I wonder, even in the course of this last little while, heard one of the songs we sang and thought, do I really like that? Is that working for me? Instead of instantaneously thinking, how how glad I am it's working for that other person down the pew. How many times do I find my own self thinking about how I'm going to get the upper hand against all of those irreligious people, those nuns out there in our country today, instead of thinking, how do I adapt myself to fulfill the Great Commission? This anxiety about the others this turning inward towards self. I don't think we meant for this to happen. I I don't think we meant to ever lose a God's eye view of this world. But we have been under, let's face it, let's confess it, pressure. (laughs) Immense pressure. There's been so much change. It's come so fast. There's been so much violence and turmoil and, and confusion in our times. We've lost our seat at the table, in a sense, uh, within the wider culture as Christians, and wounded now and worried by some particularly bad kinds of others. And they are bad ones out there. Let's face it. We have found it harder to look for the light, the image of God, the eternity in the heart that the Scriptures say He has put in every other person. We've just found that harder to do. We've increasingly seen others as our obstacles and our opponents. When if we are followers of Jesus, 
we are meant to regard others as the object of our life, of our mission. Not our opponents, not our obstacles, the objects, the focus of our life. This is why at this critical moment in the life of our country, and I would say the life of the American church, and the life of Christ Church of Oak Brook, we desperately need to meet Jesus again. Because Jesus sets things right. Jesus gives us the vision that we need. You know, many, many years ago, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a church that was dealing with some of the same kind of, of pressure. Uh, the early church in the ancient world was um, under all kinds of pressure from uh, a pagan society, from uh, social and political conflicts and changes, from actually mass migrations going on during the first century in the Roman world. It was a tumultuous time, and many of the Christians, the early believers there, had begun to turn in upon themselves. They had grown hardened towards other people. And Paul saw this happening, and he was concerned about it. And so he wrote these words in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, in other words, if knowing Christ has made a difference in your life, if it hasn't just been window dressing, if it hasn't just been a show, if it hasn't just been religion, if you have been connected to Jesus in any penetrating kind of way, if Christ and his spirit have made any dent on you, then, says Paul, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. Who are we being called to be one in and in spirit and in mind with there. That's right, it's Jesus. It's not the political pundit, it's not the talk show host, it's not the person we listen to on the radio, it's not the celebrity, it's not uh, somebody running for office today. The person we're called to be one in mind and in spirit with above all else is the name above all names. The one God has lifted to the highest place, Jesus. He is to be our vision be thou our vision. You see, if you're a Christian, you've made a choice. You were invited to come sit at the table with the ultimate view and the ultimate companion. You were brought to a very high place when you said yes to Jesus. You were invited to look from a really high window to learn to look at life and at people the way God looks at life and at people, which is to say with a radical, redeeming kind of love. If you're a Christian, this is your seat, your point of view. Now, we will experience in this life a lot of things that will try and lower that point of view, bring it down, right? We'll see a lot in life and, and experience many influences that will try and lower our perspective, that will try and make us bitter, prideful, unforgiving, callous, resentful, consumeristic, fearful, and otherwise self-focused. 
But because we're with Jesus at the table, because he's made us one with him, we are to fight that lowering of our point of view as if we were fighting some kind of satanic terrorism on our soul because we are. Because that's what Satan is always, Eve is always trying to do is to get us to turn inward on ourselves instead of outward towards the bounty of what God seeks to do. So instead, says St. Paul, here's the recipe for you. Do nothing, absolutely not one thing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others, even above yourself. And then in case we might not get this, Paul underlines the viewpoint all over again. He says, make sure that your driving orientation is not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of who? The others. The others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, viewpoint, attitude, orientation, mode of being as Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes off on one of the most amazing riffs in all of the Bible. uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. And in this uh, particular text, he reveals uh, Christ as so utterly committed to the best interests of the others in his universe that he leaves his seat at that very high table of his and travels, gets in the elevator, and travels 110 stories down. I mean, a lot more than that, really. But I mean, like a long way down to the earth. And though he is the God of infinity and beyond, he is so glorious and so holy and so perfect. He is so much better and more beautiful and brighter than any of the others. He takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself to get close to them. He cherishes the remaining light in them so very much that he takes on their body, their language, their burdens, their, 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 their issues. He takes on their food, their culture. He takes it all on to himself and to serve their greatest need to be forgiven of their sins, to be reconciled with God, to be brought back to their senses. He takes on the full weight of their guilt on the cross, and he gives up his life for them. He gives his life for the sake of the others. Do we get it? Do we get this? This is Christianity. Christians seek to live in an otherward direction because that's the way God rolls. Discipleship means imitation. 
And I'd go as far as to say that the distinctive characteristic of Christianity is not that we meet in a building with a steeple on the top. The distinctive, distinctive characteristic of Christianity is its God-modeled devotion to living an otherward life. And, and, and the, the crucial question is, are we doing it? Are we living an otherward life? How would we know? Well, first of all, otherward people are outgoing. Even if they're introverted by temperament, otherward people make a move toward others. Philippians 2 describes the lengths to which Jesus goes to make that kind of move. We, Gospels are constantly picturing Christ making the move, crossing the boundaries, crossing the street, crossing the room, you know, crossing the walls of various kinds to get close to others. The question is, could we be doing more than that than we are? Could we, for example, take a risk this week to reach out, to go out to someone who is other than us, a different race, a different culture, a different politics, a, a, a different background? Uh, could we try and build a relationship with them, learn something about their story and interests? That would be an otherward behavior. Secondly, otherward people are treasure seekers. Uh, they are uh, interested in what lies beneath the surface of others' lives. They are not just people who say, hi, shake hands, walk by. They stop to dig. They have a suspicion that because this person in front of them was created by the holy God, that there's something inside worth discovering. They want to know the story. They want to know the hurts and the hopes of that person. And so they work at that, like Jesus worked at that. Notice how often in the Gospels, Christ stops with people. Uh, he, he's not a politician. He stops and lingers with individuals and wants to know what they're wondering about, what they're hurting about, what they're hoping for. Think of all the questions Jesus asks them. Do you realize how much treasure is buried out there? God did not make junk. He never made junk. So dig for the gold today. Find somebody that's other than you and dig for the gold. Thirdly, otherward people are hospitable. They're hospitable. By that I mean they don't want to just brush up against someone, bounce off someone. They want to sit at table with someone. In fact, otherward people are always thinking about the table, the circle, the, 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 the environment where we can come closer and spend time and build connection. And they issue invitations into these safe, nourishing circles. I became a Christian because of this. I was hostile and suspicious of Christians and of God and of church. But a group of Christ followers were hospitable to me, and they welcomed me in. They created a safe space for me to ask my questions and express my anger and my hurt. And it turned my heart. It opened my heart and changed my mind. Is there somebody, 
some other out there, a widow maybe, a, a, a skeptic, a, 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 an, an immigrant, a person of a different color, a, a, a person on the edge of the crowd, some other person to whom you can extend an invitation this week to share a meal, to come to your group, to meet some new friends, to be part of a church like ours. Could you be hospitable more than you have been? Other word, people are also empathetic, empathetic. You'll have heard the story perhaps of the, of the little girl who um, came home late for dinner and dad was very upset about this and he uh, pulled her aside and he said, I need to know why you were so late in coming home. She says, well, I was coming home and I, was, I came alongside of a boy and he had been sent out to the store by his mom and dad to buy a, 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 a bottle of milk and then as he was coming home, he had dropped the milk bottle. And the dad said, so you stayed to help him clean it up. And she said, no, I stayed to help him cry until he had the courage to go home again. We can't always clean up the spilt milk in people's lives. We can't always solve their problems. Some problems are pretty complicated. Some will be here to the grave. But we can always sit with them, stand with them, in their tears, in their struggles, in their questions, like Jesus did. In fact, when the Bible was looking for a term to describe Jesus' character, it used the word Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Who is another, who is that other out there you'll meet this week who simply needs someone to empathize, to let them know that you feel for them, you feel with them, they are not alone. Fifthly, other word people are resourceful. They, they think a lot about resources and how those can be used. I'm betting along the path of your life you've had resourceful relationships of many kinds. You, you had somebody that believed in you. You had somebody that schooled you. You had somebody that, that wrote the letter of reference for you. You had somebody that opened a door for you. You've had many, I know I've had many, many, many different resourceful people in my life. They did not need to do what they did for me or for you. They could have kept it for themselves. God is the supreme example of a resourceful person. He is not just a resource. He is the source, as our window reminds us right over there. He is the source. He has it all. He had everything in himself. He was totally self-sufficient. He could have spent his entire eternity just wrapped up and enjoying the Trinity, but instead he said, no, I think I'll share it all. I think I'll curve outward instead. How can we be doing this? How can we be doing this? When we meet someone this week, when we meet an other who needs something that we have the power to confer, what will we do? The final quality of other people, other word people I want to highlight today is that other word people are self-sacrificing. They are willing to pay a price to help redeem the lives of others. They are willing to roll up their sleeves, to get dirty, to bleed, if that's what it takes to help God's redemptive work go forward. 
You know, on September 10th, 2001, along Canal Street in Lower Manhattan, you could have gone to dinner at Nino's. It was a wonderful little neighborhood restaurant. All of the same people came there. There were no others there. All the same kinds of people came there each and every week for a bottle of Chianti and a decent pasta dinner. Nino's could hold maybe jam-packed 100 people. And maybe in the course of a, of a given week, that's about all of the meals they'd serve, about 100 meals. On September the 12th of 2001, Nino's uh, restaurant, very near ground zero, opened its doors to a whole new clientele. In the weeks and months that followed, Nino's served um, 7,000 meals a day. A day on average, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and its customers, its clientele, didn't pay a dime for the meals. They, the customers, they were New York's finest. They were police officers and firefighters and members of the Port Authority and FBI and CIA agents and construction engineers and Red Cross workers. They were all of these people who were laboring on the front lines trying to do something redemptive in the midst of the horror and the pain. And if you went there, you, you would likely see some police officer unable to keep her eyes open any longer slumped over her meal. Or maybe you might run into a six-foot-five-inch-tall firefighter who was on his way in with only the tracks of the tears down his soot-streamed face to tell you even what skin color it was beneath. Maybe you'd hear the accents of a church group from South Carolina who'd come on up, sacrifice their vacation, to come on up for two weeks just to scrub the walls of the apartment's of people devastated by what had happened. And you'd see trucks arriving from who knows where to resupply the tables at Nino's with food and drink that have been paid for by someone else, sacrificially, freely given for those who just needed it, who just needed the help. One September morning, evil did its worst. As I've said, it would succeed in part. It would accelerate the closing down of the heart of America. It would get us to turn even more inwardly upon ourselves. It would lead us to the bunkering, the fear, the hostility that afflicts us now across almost every sector of our life. Race, politics, economics, um, but even then, there were these people who insisted on continuing to look out of a different window, who would look out of a window on the world like God looks through, people who just kept setting tables like God presides over eternally. Evil tried to make America collapse in upon itself like those great towers did but a faithful remnant of servants kept looking otherward instead, which means that they became even 
more outgoing, even more treasure-seeking, even more hospitable and empathetic and resourceful and self-sacrificing, which is to say, whether they were aware of it or not, they became more like Jesus. And that's good news because he is what our world still needs most. And so my question is, will you and will I and will his church conceal Christ or reveal Christ by the way we look and the way we live in these years ahead? Let's think about that as we come before God in prayer.